Welcome to the Watchword podcast, exploring life's big decisions and the factors behind them. In this episode, I talk to Steve McCulley. Steve runs a business which builds and fits custom-made bikes, from mountain bikes to road bikes. They are handmade in the UK and customised to each client. The name of the company is Leos, and he named it after his children, Lily and Oscar. If you're a keen cyclist, then check out leosbikes.com and that's L-I-O-S, and consider treating yourself because not only are the bikes designed and built in the UK, the story behind the company sets them apart. While Steve loves bikes, he was forced into his career change through injury. He was blown up in Afghanistan whilst commanding 175 Marines in battle. The injuries he sustained were numerous and substantial, but during his rehabilitation, he made a plan and went on to build a successful company as well as a successful career in motor racing. I think it's safe to say he's not your 9 to 5 kind of guy. If you'd like to get in touch with Steve, you can do so via his website, stevemcculley.com, or follow Leos Bikes on all social media. Please also leave a review for the Watchword podcast on Apple Podcasts, as it really does make a difference. Hello, Steve. Thank you very much for joining me. I really do appreciate it. How are you? How are you getting on at the moment? How are things? Uh, thanks, for, thanks for having me. Thanks for inviting me. Um, yeah, pretty good, I guess, considering uh, the current situation with the COVID nineteen lockdown and everything that's going on around the world. Um, I, yeah, I'm kind of. I always, I always try and look at the positives in everything, even when there's a big negative. Um, I'm also, actually, I don't know if you know this. I, I. I spent six weeks in hospital at the beginning of the year, I had nine operations, wow. and then got hit by COVID. So, so far, in theory, my year has been fairly rubbish, but I'm still kind of quite upbeat and positive at the moment. So that's good. Well, no, well, no, I didn't know that. Um, but you're on, you're on the mend now, though. You're you know, back to full fitness or getting there? No, it'll probably be another year. Yes. <laughs> I just throw that one in there right at the beginning. No, and non, not related to my previous military injuries. I... <laughs> Unfortunately, I snapped my femur, uh, my tib and fib. Um, and yeah, quite nasty. I had an hour and a half. I was, I was snowboarding and I was stuck on the hill for an hour and a half before the medics got to me with fairly nasty injuries. And wow. um, they, uh, yeah, apparently I was 10 seconds, when they got me into hospital, I was 10 seconds away from cutting my leg off. <laughs> uh, so since then, yeah, I've had a titanium rod in my femur and a massive plate down my shin and they were cut half my calf away and put it on the front to cover the metal work. <laughs> I've been off crutches a month. I'm kind of getting around now, which is good because um, I'd, I'd taken on a new unit with my business and uh, I needed to get working. So, yeah, all, all okay though. Wow. Wow. What a, I mean, what a start. You just, it's sort of relent, relentless. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, and how is I mean we, we've we chatted before about your your business obviously um, Leos bikes you, you make custom custom made um, really pretty impressive bikes how, how is everything going with that at the moment in the sort of current climate um, interestingly early on the government you know, one of the things the government said was that bike shops could continue to operate specifically to service and maintain bikes um specifically for essential workers but also those that want to do exercise and so that was an avenue that we leos could continue with uh, which was good 
Uh, we can't do bike fittings because of the two meter distancing and so on. So, so servicing and maintenance is actually a, a new proposal for Leos. Up until this year, uh, it wasn't something I offered. Um, it was just purely the, the custom carbon bicycles and bike fitting. But I wanted to, at the end of last year, I made a decision to expand the business, take on new premises and try and grow this year. Uh, so that, in that sense, it's kind of, for me, the, the timing has been quite yeah, kind of opportune. Um, so I'm trying to, and whilst a lot of bike shops around me have shut, I'm pushing it as much as possible in order to take as much of their business as I can. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's a pretty crazy situation, but um, but and obviously there are winners and losers, some big winners and and um, and and cycle shops in general. Or you just seem to see more people on bikes. Maybe we were chatting before, and I've only started cycling in the last three years, I think, since I left the military. And um, I've noticed in, the, in despite the lockdown, there's, there's quite a lot of cyclists out and you, it kind of, it makes sense. People are choosing to do that rather than go on public transport, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. I, I think it's, yeah, for, hopefully for the cycling industry, uh, yeah, we'll come out of the back end perhaps um, busier. But it, we're, we're, the last few years, the industry has been on a massive downturn. It grew after the Olympics in 2012. Um, quite significantly for five years and then it started to plateau and then the, the only area that's grown in the last few years has been e-bike sales which has been massive right. um, but I think yeah out the back of uh, the coronavirus I yeah I think I think um, the cycling industry hopefully will do I say do well out of it clearly you know I don't mean that those that don't do well but yeah, for me, hopefully it's going to be okay. Fingers crossed. It needs to be. I've invested a lot of money the last few months. Yeah, well, and if the cycling industry does well, then people are getting fitter and people are getting healthier and spending more time outdoors. So I think it's, whilst obviously it's a, a grave situation, the cycle industry growing is, is just a positive all round, really. Yeah, I totally agree. I think one of the things that cycling does, and people are probably starting to recognise, is once you, you know, you're fairly proficient at it, and you don't really have to think about, you know, your brakes or changing gear. It's a very, it's a very good way of clearing your mind. Um, the chimp paradox. Have you read? I don't know if you read that book. Um, it's been can, recommended. Yeah, you know, if you can kind of keep control of your chimp, which. Generally, whilst you're cycling, the chimp's kind of look, looking the way is the way I look at it. He's you know, ensuring that you're cycling okay. So then your head is clear to um, think about you know life, work, relationship, whatever. Um, I, I always, I mean, I've not been able to cycle for a while now, but I always, um, I always get back from a bike ride with a nice clear head. And certainly talking to customers over the last few weeks, uh, new cycle or new people new to cycling. They're, they're recognizing that as well which is great yeah and it's uh, well yeah I, I i agree also i mean i i find that myself and um not just with cycling but any kind of well running too i think primarily like the gym less so but any yeah. kind of outdoor activity running and cycling definitely um clears head and interestingly in another episode so i spoke to a guy called sam hall who is the apac CEO of a venture capital company called Rainmaking, yeah. and he's a really big advocate of um, 
of the concept of deep work and there's a book called deep work and he kind of he explained it very simply obviously it's a you know it's a whole book so it's difficult to um to explain in detail but he he gave the sort of analogy that he sometimes he goes swimming and the exact kind of same description that you just gave of of what your brain is doing whilst you're cycling uh that's how he kind of like solves problems and thinks things through yeah. and it's just like a slight detachment from from the uh from daily activity so it's in your description just kind of made me think of that immediately so yeah and it's, it's funny you should say that because my other half she's a very good swimmer and that's where she does her thinking uh she actually does open water swimming in a in, just in a swimsuit no wetsuit well wow. uh, whereas for me i i have to really think about swimming so i i it doesn't clear my my mind at all and conversely like cycling for her she still has to think about braking and changing gears so i i, I do i do feel you, you need to be able to get to a, uh, a point where the activity is kind of second nature then it, then it's a lot easier but yeah mm. yeah so i mean cycling is you've almost gone full circle with regards to your career haven't you because you when you were You've come back to, to bikes and that is now your, your profession, your business. You make high quality custom bikes. Um, but that's almost where you, where you started, was it not? Like that was your passion as a child before you joined the Marines. Yeah, um, from, a, from a young age, I think I learned it from, from my dad fixing bikes. And he, uh, he, we used to go to the dump, uh, well, he'd go to the dump every day and I'd always often accompany him and uh, he would pick up washing machines, TVs, video recorders and I'd try and pick up bikes and then take them home, fix them and sell them at car boot sales or, or wherever. And so from a very early, kind of seven, eight years old, I was you know, fixing bikes and he'd, he'd buy them for me, I'd fix it and then we'd split the profit and so on. And, um, and then I, I started when mountain biking started to take off in the uh, eighties, early nineties, um, I then started racing as a youth and then, then junior um, up to a national level. Yeah. And so you're right. I, it's got I've gone full circle. Definitely. And when you, obviously you chose to join the Marines and you spent, you spent quite a significant amount of time in the Marines. How long did you do? Uh, 17 and a half years, so closer to 18. So I, I now say 18. I used to say 17, but then I realized <laughs> I, did, I did just over 17 and a half, so I now say 18, but yeah, <laughs> 17 and a half years. Yeah, I, yeah. I, would, I would definitely say 18. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, you, you were into bikes, you, you could fix them, which kind of suggests that you, like some, some people, some children are good at that, and some of the some are definitely not. So, for example, me, I was definitely not good at taking bikes apart and fixing them and stuff like that. So, did you did you always just want to be a marine? Because that kind of skill um, doesn't necessarily intuitively lead mm. you to think that you would join the marines. Like it's it's almost yeah. like the, the the foundation of an engineer. Well, it's funny you should say that. That was due to be my destiny. I suppose I. I I got those skills from my dad. And it, if I think about it, it was because I had to. Unfortunately, and you know, I've told him this since, he wasn't really interested in the things I wanted to do. You know, I was very sporty, 
you know, football, rugby at county level, all the kind of county level sports, team captains, and you know, I was really into my sport. Mm. Um, and but that that wasn't his thing, which is fair enough. And so I guess I, I had to do things that he was interested in, which uh, were yeah, mending cars, fixing motorbikes. He he had a number of businesses, which. Well, actually, I suppose quite. He had a motorcycle museum. He had a paintball site. He had a open top double decker bus that used to take people on tours. He had a seafood stall. He had an electronics company. You know, like, just wow, super busy, uh, which is probably why he didn't have much time for, for me and my brother. I guess in that sense, I don't mean that nastily. Um, but what it did mean, it, I, I was kind of forced to learn a lot of practical, hands-on things and. One of the early, I suppose, one of the things I carry through with me to this day, one of his um, biggest uh, sayings was, uh, I, I'd always say, oh, you know, it's impossible. We can't do this. You can't do this. And or we can't do that. And he said, no, nothing's impossible. There's always a way around it. Um, and so I think what he instilled in me was that, you know, you never give up. And it's a good, good philosophy to have, certainly in the military. But, but you're right. So I, I did... Um, very logical kind of maths, physics, technology, A levels, and I was, I was, yeah, I was destined to do a master's in mechanical engineering. I had uh, six unconditional offers to university, um, and that was that was probably what I was going to do. But I, I took a, I took a year out. So whereas all my mates went off to university, uh, around the, when we were doing A levels, I did. Um, it was. I think, we had, I think there's one computer in the whole school. Computers are very rare. And they'd, like the careers teacher had got this new bit of software. And you, you, you plug in your, your hobbies, your interests, what subjects you do, what subjects you, you know, uh, at GCSE and A-level. And it would come up with a range of jobs that might suit you. Mm. And I thought, well, even though I was kind of, you know, I thought I was going to go off, I was just kind of, I guess, following just because of the, the, the subjects I'd chosen. I, I wasn't overly keen on mechanical engineering, but I thought, well, probably be, provide a good job. I, I wanted to do something around sport, but in my mind, I just thought that it was just going to be so um, unlikely to be able to get something that would pay well at the end of the day. Mm. And um, anyway, I filled in all the forms and it came back and it had one option and it was Royal Marines officer, which I thought was a bit random. And at the time, I, I was, you know, I, uh, it was just after the Gulf War and I, um, you know, I'd read all the Andy McNabb and Chris Ryan books and then I was looking into special forces and, and so, you know, I was aware of the Marines and I, I already knew, or in my mind, that I thought, you know, they were the toughest you could get into before going special forces. And so when it said this, I thought, oh, maybe I should look into that. And a friend of mine who was a year older, he, he was going through Royal Marine training as a Marine. And so I went to his passing out parade and yeah, from that day I was like, right, this is actually what I want to do. And so I, instead of going straight to university, I took a year out and um, went to the careers office. So I was working with my dad and went, went to the careers office and said, I'd like to be a Royal Marines officer. And he said, have you got a degree? I said, no. Um, he said, but you know, your literature says you don't need a degree. You just need A-levels and GCSEs. Mm. And it, no one's got in with that degree for the last four years, you know, go and get a degree and come back. And I said, but can't I at least try? And he said, well, you can, but you won't get in. And I said, I, I kind of got my back up. I thought, well, I don't want to be too lippy. He said, well, why don't you let me have a try? 
if I don't get in, I'll go to university and I'll come back. And you know, oh, God, I filled in the forms and yeah, the rest is history. I, I kind of, I got in as a, I was the youngest in, in the batch, as we call it, in the Royal Marines training. Um, nicknamed the boy. To this day, our friends of mine are now very senior officers and they still call me the boy. <laughs> and uh, yes, yeah, so I, I never followed the engineering path and, and went in the Marines instead. Yeah, well, it, it, it reminds me of the, a couple of people who I went through training with at, at Sandhurst who were, who were also 18. And the, like, a couple of things. Firstly, you kind of think it's impressive that they're doing it at that age. Like, that's one thing that I definitely thought at the time. Um, mm. You know, fair play to them. And, and secondly, what a great option because, um, again, other conversations that we've had, we've talked about the, the pros and cons of going to university. And um, I think there's quite a strong argument for, for not, depending on what you choose to do instead. And if you choose to join the military as an officer aged 18, the next sort of five, six, seven years, a, a, a steep learning curve, you learn an awful lot, you gain a lot of skills and become pretty employable. And then by the time you've, you say six years in, you know, you're only 24, 25. And what, what a level of experience you've got at that age, at such a young age. Yeah, I, yeah, I totally agree. Um, it did. It worked, yeah, I was lucky. It worked out very well for me. And it does for most guys that, that do join as an officer straight away. And the, the biggest one, you know, I, I now say I went to the University of Life. <laughs> um, it was certainly tough, but once, as you know, having been in, in the military, uh, staff college and all the kind of desk jobs come around pretty quickly when you're a graduate. Mm. Uh, whereas when you're a non-graduate, you get to do, what I'd say, you know, the, the more the fun jobs uh, for an extra three years, if not more, mm. before you have to start thinking about, you know, actually I need to do the, the crunchy staff job in order to get promoted and so on. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I had, yeah, I had a lot more time. You know, I, I served in every, it was very rare. You, know, you do move around, but it's rare to serve in uh, all the commander units. I served in all the commander units on operations, including the commander logistics regiment, every, in, in uh, uh, leadership roles, uh, because I had that extra time. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we, we're, um, we're now sort of into the realms of your, your career in the, um, in the Marines. And as you said, it's a, it's an 18, it's an 18 year career. So it's, it's difficult in terms of, uh, questions. I was, I would say when someone's career is that long to kind of say, oh, so what happened at this point and what happened at that point? But I guess I'd almost sort of say, well, if you look back now at at those 18 years, what are your, what are your reflections on on the, the you know the key events and the key learning points? I guess because you, you had some some very intense experiences in the military. Yeah, I suppose. I guess the the, e- the easiest way would be to look at operational tours, mm. um, but I suppose that doesn't necessarily uh, mean you know those were the the most colourful periods or the, the areas where I learned the most. Um, so yeah, I don't know how the best way I'd go through the career. Like you said, I had on a list of all the jobs I've, I've done because, again, I was very fortunate to do a lot, lot of jobs, really interesting jobs, uh, and I managed, I managed to kind of work my career to my advantage. Mm. Uh, and again, I think 
that was because you know I, I, I was a non-grad and had that extra time and by the time it gets a bit more important you, you know what you're doing and you know how to you work with the, the appointer or the officer career manager we call the the appointer and so I'd have a better idea of how to kind of play that to get what I wanted mm. um, through my career but yeah I suppose, I suppose you know I interested North, you know, Northern Ireland before uh, cessation that was you know interesting because it was interesting, Kosovo, and so, well, it's, it's, it's interesting for me how every operational tour ramped up. So Northern Ireland, it was right at the end of the Troubles, um, before normalisation. But I did, I did a really interesting job. I was out there, I was, a permanent, I was out there for a year, permanent staff, and I was officer in charge of all uh, boarding operations in, we were based out of Belfast. Uh, but we had, so we looked up Belfast, Carlingford Lock and Lock Ney. Um, and I had, I kind of had 50 odd guys, uh, 30 odd boats, um, a lot of really you know, Gucci kit, uh, fast boats, patrol boats, raiders, loads of kit. And we were cutting around in vehicles, doing all the kind of, all the, all the really, really fun stuff. Yeah. During a period where it was, you know, we were going through normalisation, um, and you know, it was minimal terrorist activities, but it was more, you know, drug smuggling and money laundering and all those things. That I guess that fueled terrorism before, during, and I guess even now, really. Um, so that was pretty cool. But then the next, what Kosovo was next, and that was a step up again. Um, but then, you know, then then I did Iraq two thousand and three. We went in. I went in, um, you know, in March, and that was a big step up. But then I always, always think we did the did the five six months before we came out, you know. And at the time, that was you know for everyone, that's the biggest thing since the Gulf War and also then the Falklands. Mm. Um, but I always, and then after I did two Afghan tours. What what stood out for me for Afghan certainly the second tour. You know, I always you know. A day in Afghan was like a whole, you know, whole four months in Iraq. Now, don't get me wrong; there were certain periods of Iraq as well that were very, very pun- just as, you know, almost as punchy. Yeah. Um, but certainly through my career, my experiences, it was quite incredible. The the, the curve of uh, I get activity intensity, whatever you want to call it, um, it was greater than it. it was. It was kind of a shallow, and then went very steep as the the tours changed. Um. So I've kind of gone off on one there, not really answered your question about my career. No, well, my, no, my, my question was a very uh, vague one. <laughs> so, um, no, that's a, it's really useful insight. It, it, the thing that comes to mind is, um, I don't know why, but the, the idea of being, of being challenged and being out of your depth, um, do you think that, like, were there many occasions? I guess you had a long career, so there must have been occasions where you really felt challenged and and like you were up against it yeah and i suppose that that start you know i'll then go through you know you, you get a lot of that in training but i won't talk about those you know don't talk about training bits um but i yeah i mean my, my first job at the end of the day because i you know i passed out as a still a, you know a super young guy i was the youngest bloke in my troop <laughs> Yeah, as as the as the troop commander, yeah. it happened because my first job was actually the commander logistics regiment. You know, and I was I was kind of gutted because you join the Marines, you want to be out in a commander unit, but not everyone gets to go to commander units. Um, my batch officer was very specific, and 
rightly so, he said, look, you've got time, you'll get to do another troop command job, if not two more, in commander units. So, yeah. And actually, I had an amazing time at the commander logistics regiment. I was in charge of what was called combat support troop, don't know what it's called nowadays. Um, you know, similar amount of guys, 30, 35 guys, but I had a shitload of vehicles, trucks, stuff like that that I knew not a lot about. Yeah. And I had to learn about logistics. And so I was massively out of my depth because I'd done 15 months of, you know, in, in essence, infantry commando training. Yeah. Bugger all on logistics. Um, and then thrown into as a troop, you know, I there was, without, there was three of my Marines had degrees. And there was me as a troop officer. <laughs> and so I guess, yeah, that was my, uh, a very steep learning curve right from the beginning. Um, but I think probably put me in good stead. Uh, and actually, my first boss, he was, he was, yeah, really, really great guy. Um, he'd done a lot of time already. Um, he'd been special forces. You know, he'd done Falklands. He'd done the Gulf War with SF, done a lot of stuff in Northern Ireland back in the day. Yeah. And I learned a lot from him. One of the, actually, one of the biggest things I learned from him, which I, I constantly tell everyone, is the old adage, if you don't ask, you don't get. Because I was constantly asking to go on courses and do loads of extra stuff. And I managed to convince him to let me go on a jungle warfare instructor's course, which, wow. again, for an officer, very rare unless you, your unit's going and then, you know, then it might be one or two officers get to go. Whereas for me, we weren't, we were a commander logistics regiment, we weren't going to the jungle. But I kind of asked, you know, I said, oh, I'd love to do this because, you know, I just wanted to, you know, learn as much as I could. And he went, yeah, totally get it. Off you go, you know, 10 weeks. And I came back and um, at that point, the, there was a, the Jungle Warfare Tracking Instructors course was due to start a week later. And that one, there was only 10 or 12 people on it. And, you know, they, they only ran it twice a year. And I think officers never got to go on it. Um, and you had to be a Jungle Warfare Instructor to even do the tracking course, Tracking Instructors course. And the, the army, the Marines only got two places per course, so four places a year for the whole of the Marines. Um, but on this course, and that would, we'd filled it for this course, but uh, apparently there was, a, there was a place that the army couldn't fill. And so it came to the Marines, and the Marines put out a signal saying, right, we need a JWI to go and do this tracking course. And I was good mates with the training officer, who was obviously a lot more senior to me. And he said, oh, it's a tracking course, you know, people want... And he said, what are you... I said, well, no chance. I've just come back from 10 weeks in the jungle. Um, anyway, I kind of sidled up to my boss and I was like, oh, you never guess what, blah, blah, blah. He said, get to the point, what are you asking? And I was like, well, he said, if you don't ask, you don't get. And I said, can I go back out to Brunei for two months to do the jungle tracking instructors course? Wow. And he said, he said, you speak to your troop, if, if you can make it, if you can ensure that your troop will be all right, he said, that I'm happy to release you. And so I was back for four days and then I was straight back out to Brunei on the tracking instructor's course. Wow, you must, have, you must have returned like a completely different level of, um, of, of soldier or a marine from that, from that experience because they're, they're some pretty serious courses, aren't they? Yeah, and they were back in the day. That was kind of, you know, they were like rocking horse shit. Um, so I was very, yeah, as an officer to have done them. To, and I got a recommend to return as an instructor to Brunei as well. And so... I came back from there and my, my year was then up as my troop command and I'd spent you know, half of it in the jungle in Brunei, which is really cool. Yeah. Uh, 
And then I went, I went straight, I went to, as, as per my batch officer had said, I went to a commander unit as a troop commander. So I then turned up uh, as a troop commander, promoted out of, you know, out of set to lieutenant, having done a tracking instructor's course, drummer warfare instructor's course. Um, and then suddenly I had all that, you know, experience in a very short space of time. And uh, I guess it also meant when I was in joined 4-5 Commando, you know, I managed to get a fair amount of immediate respect from the guys because even though it had only been a year, I'd, I'd notched up a fair amount of experience. Yeah. I bet your admin must have been free squared. <laughs> yeah, well, in, it's one of the, I mean, I've, I've, not, I've since this, I've done five, six jungles now. Yeah. With Brunei's three, yeah, on three different continents. So I've done, and it didn't, I mean, for 4-5 Commando, we were then a year later due to do a Belize trip. Uh, by that point, I'd been moved on to be, I was a company second in command. And so, but no, no one was jungle, the training officer was in jungle warfare, or no one was jungle warfare and trained. And so they, they, we had to, I remember the unit sent to kind of like 28 guys off to Brunei to do JWIs. So I ended up writing the whole unit jungle warfare package because I'd kind of done all that stuff, um, which for someone that had only been out of training three years was quite punchy. Yeah. So what, what kind of time was this in correlation to, because I'm kind of thinking in, in my head, I've sort of got one eye on, um, on you know, the conflict in Afghanistan. Like wh where? where uh, it's no, it's late 90s. Yeah, um, so it's sort of, it's, it's still quite a few years out. So you, you were, uh, you kind of pr promoted to, to captain until, until shortly before um, the second Iraq war. So I, well, again, because, because I was a non-grad, so, the, the rank rank structure changed around that, that period anyway for the for mm. the marines because back then our company commanders were captains was the army company commanders were majors right uh, and so you know you could be a lieutenant having done 10 years um and it, then it all we had what's called rank realignment and it, there was a big structure change and so what it meant was uh, at that point i was a company second in command as a left as a lieutenant um, but then all, all graduates as lieutenants got immediately promoted to captain. All captains got promoted to major. It was a massive restructure. Right. Um, but then, and so that was fine. So I, I was a lieutenant second in command to a major now company commander. But then I made the point, this is, that, this is, where, this is 19, 1999, that... Um, the three troop commanders were all graduates. Now they, they'd only just passed out of training, so they were second lieutenants. But what it meant was graduates jumped from second lieutenant to captain. Mm. They skipped lieutenant, but that's changed now. Mm. And so I'd said to my boss, I said, look, uh, come you know, a year's time, the troop commanders are gonna outrank the second in command. <laughs> and you right. know, like, oh, I not thought about that. And so that got pushed back to the kind of headquarters of the Royal Marines as it was at the time. Got a visit from the appointed officer career manager and when they, they do their roadshow and at this point I hadn't heard anything. So I asked the question at the end of his brief and he went, oh, I knew you were going to ask that. He said, well, he said, we'll just make sure that it, we never have a long bread as a second in command again. I went, you what? I said, that's a bit prejudice, isn't it? Why? Just because, because of your system. I said, Non-graduates generally had more experience than graduates. Anyway, long story short, what it meant was I got acting captain. So I never, so I got, I got paid and the rank. So I never really, did, so I, I kind of, I, I massively dipped in because of the job I was doing. So I, 
I never really did much time as a lieutenant, even though I should have. So I got paid as a, as a graduate um, throughout my early career until I then actually made substantive captain. So you got off to a pretty good start, really. You got the courses that you wanted. Yeah, you, got the, yeah. you got the rank that you wanted. Um, <laughs> and a lot of it was all goes back to about my first boss, where he said, if you don't ask, you don't get. I, was, yeah. I suppose everybody thought I was necky. It was a bit like, you know, I did my jumps course as a company second in command. And people were like, well, why do you need to do jumps course? And I said, well, I don't need to do it, but if you don't ask, you don't get. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so that, that has stuck with me to this day. Yeah, well, yeah, a, a, a useful lesson, I think, it, it, and it, it works. Um, yeah, it does, and all, all at the worst case, somebody's going to say no. You're like, okay, but if you don't ask, you definitely, you definitely won't get it. Yeah, yeah. So th- these years are kind of laying the, uh, kind of laying the foundation for, you know, you wouldn't have known it at the time, but there's this, you, you kind of, you'd, you'd learnt your craft really as a as a junior officer as 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 a as a marine officer right up until the point at which two pretty intensive conflicts kicked off which which had a which have had a pretty dramatic impact on you really haven't they um in terms of what you've then gone on to do so so how did that period unfold obviously i'm conscious that it's quite a it's quite a big chunk of time yeah um I suppose I don't know which, but yeah, I, I, you're right. I mean, what, it, what it meant because I had that extra time to do those extra jobs, get in the extra courses. When it when it came to, um, I'm trying to think the operations that I did. Well, I, I suppose if I, if I look to what I suppose the, the, what I would call the pinnacle of my career when I was a company commander. Um, so I got I got promoted to major at 29 years old. I was a company commander at 31, 32. Wow. Um, which again was pretty young, but again, I, by that point, I'd done 13, 14 years, I'd done four tours, yeah. five tours, yeah, whatever it was, and I'd racked up a fair amount of experience. This is not me blowing my trumpet, it just meant, it, it, I, I suppose, I, I, was, I was comfortable in my own skin, and it, again, it was a lot easier to kind of get respect quickly from the guys. Um, you know, clearly, you've still got to, You've got, to, well, you've got to earn it and you've got to kind of prove your, your ability but I was off to a, a running start because because of the experiences I'd had to that point yeah and so if we if we talk about company command so obviously for people who aren't in the military who aren't in the military or weren't in the military that's you, you are responsible for a team of around about 80 80 to 100 sol- uh, soldiers no, or marines. No. So I was a, what's called a, at the time it's called a close combat company. So as a, I suppose a standard company is about 125. Yeah. Um, and then, but because we were, um, we were then we knew we'd be going on Operic 14. Uh, my company grew. Well, I had 148 Marines, and then with the attachments, I was just shy of 175 um, personnel, mm-hmm. uh, of which 148 Marines. Um, so yeah, it was, it was quite you know it was, it was a big command, a lot of you know, because you, know, you get all the the attachments and so on, fire support groups and you know your 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 food, your food team, your artillery, engineers. Mm. Um, it was um, you know, and then your kit and equipment, vehicles. I think worked out about forty million quid worth of kit. Yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of yeah, it's quite a, I suppose. Um, yeah, it's a significant command, as it was for all, all the guys at all the levels uh, at that time. Um, 
when you when you sort of reflect on that obviously that's a lot of people um a lot of equipment they're all a lot of those people are from different organizations as well when you look back on your position as a as a leader then take taking them um you know to war for, for that period who did you lean on on people heavily because it's, it's quite a heavy burden for one person to take a, a group of that size like how who were the key people and um, and how how did you uh, seek support from them I, I guess um i suppose i guess you have you have key people at every at, at every level hmm. you know whether it be above uh side below at every rank and for me you know i uh, one of my best mates was a fellow company commander so that was you know kind of as a as a peer that was great to be in the same commander unit going on the same tour and he he'd been with the unit a year and a half already so he was fully when i joined he was fully, you know he kind of that was that was good great for me um my uh, I, I was quite lucky that i <laughs> my job before company command i was the officer career manager the appointer right. um, and so yeah, not many people know this, but I, I kind of earmarked my company 2IC about a year and a half before I was going to be a company commander. <laughs> and he, didn't, he didn't know it until I joined. <laughs> and so I, I, did, uh, I, I sent him on a year's worth of courses and experience. I sent him on a four-month tour with special forces and all sorts. So <laughs> I kind of I prepped you know, the ultimate company 2IC. Yeah. And so I, you know, I was able to lean on him, you know, and we're, he's left now. We're still very good friends. And so I, you know, I was able to lean on him. I, I was lucky. I had a great company intelligence officer uh, and then, you know, sergeants, uh, corp. They were all at yeah, every level, I suppose, depending on, on the requirement, the, the occasion, the situation, um, you know, you kind of, you, you lean on people for, uh, for different things, depending on what, you know, I guess what, what the issue is, what the situation is. Mm. Um, and uh, I, I guess it's what everyone does. Then you kind of—it's only as you've asked the question that I'm kind of thinking about. I never really thought about it, but yeah, you, you're constantly leaning on people in different aspects, uh, depending on, um, I guess, yeah, what the situation is. Yeah, and I think I think it's something that the the military does particularly well. Um, if there's there's a degree with which you kind of compare and contrast the. Particularly as someone who's left the military and gone into work in the civilian environment, um, you kind of look at the structures and the leadership and the, the kind of behaviours and capabilities of different levels of leadership. And if you look at the equivalent position of, of someone who who commands a company, um, I, I I just find it interesting when you look at you look at that structure that you talked about. There are there are leaders everywhere who will step up to the step up to the plate 100 percent complete trust um complete commitment etc etc but it's because they've been developed to, to be that way it hasn't happened by chance um no. and that's what that's what i find interesting the, the the military and the marines is obviously um uh a, a, a extremely respected and you know highly regarded um organization so they'll, they'll do it as well or as better than than the majority so it's it i just find it interesting my my assumption is you know you you've just got leaders at every level from even from your from the private soldier from the marine right through to the company commander so a job that 
that must feel quite daunting or quite lonely at times is made a great deal better by the level of leadership that's been developed throughout. Yeah, that and the Marines, you know, we, we pride ourselves on, you know, guys using initiative um, wherever, and that, that, that can make your job a lot easier. Mm. But it can also make your job a lot harder because, you know, you've got very intelligent individuals that will ask questions. They will... Um, you know, if you, you if you ask them to do something that they're not sure about, then they will they, they won't just crack on. They will go, well, hold on, mm. um, and and so it does. You know, you have to keep you know you have to keep on your toes. Mm. And I, I was very I was very honest and upfront with all my guys again at every level from the beginning and said, look, you know, I'm not the font of all knowledge here. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I make the final decision. The buck stops with me, but it doesn't mean I'm always right. Um, and I said, so, you know, if there is a situation, please, you know, use the chain of commands. But if someone's got a better idea, then, you know, let's hear it. Um, yes, it's I'm not saying it's a democracy, clear that you know, it's leadership. And as I said, the decision always ends with me, yeah. would end with me. But I would always take into account other people's suggestions and, and wouldn't poo poo anything. Uh, and if, you know, and there were, there were times where I, you know, hold my hand up and say, actually, that's a, that's a fair point. It's a really good um, you know, issue you've raised there. Let's, let's look into that. You know, we need to change my, my plan or my, my decision or whatever. Yeah. But at the end of the day, a lot of the, when, it, when, it, yeah, it, when you have the time to plan, when you have the time to do your, you know, your full estimate, that's great. And you can take on people's advice. Uh, but a lot of the time, certainly once you're kind of out there, there isn't time for that. Um, you just got to, you know, a lot of it comes down to instinct, experience, knowledge, and so on. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. It's, well, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I guess if, if, in terms of context, obviously you've, you've now left the military, you are, you now run a business, um, and you, you're involved in motorsport and you meant, you also mentor people who've, who've started business. So it's just, it's an interesting journey as a, as a whole. Um, but I guess coming back to that, to that um, tour, was that your was that your final operational tour as as your company commander? Was that what what led to? Yeah, you? so I, so I got um, I got blown up basically. <laughs> I got blown up three times in that tour. The, the third time put me in a coma for three weeks, unfortunately. Um, mm. So yeah, it was, it was uh, yeah. So Operate fourteen, we were um, Nadiali North. Uh, my company was a all intents and purposes, a ground holding company. We started off with six, six or seven checkpoints uh, and my headquarters in a forward operating base. And, but what, one of the things I'd, I'd recognize, and so there was uh, another ground holding company and then my, my best mate, he was in charge of what was the ops company. So we had a smaller manpower, about 100, 110, mm. but he was there specific to do, you know, ops stuff. Um, be able to be used as and where the CO needed. Um, but I, I'd, I'd realized that actually I could free up up to a hundred people. Uh, well, I, I worked out that um, I could free up to about 108 people for up to seven days and then less people for longer. Um, and I'd done this with, you know, through chatting to my multiple commanders who were both officers and sergeants, because I recognized that you wanted to, I wanted to keep, you know, keep, six, seven months of ground holding can be fairly monotonous. Mm. Um, so I'd say, well, look, if we have, 
if we can offer the commanding officer the ability to have another maneuver element, then A, it makes his life easier, and B, it makes our lives um, more, more interesting at the end of the day. Mm. And so I, right from the beginning, you know, even before we deployed, I said to the CEO, I said, look, if you need um, the ability to uh, use another maneuver, you know, I can offer you this. And I gave him you know, how many days I could deploy, how many blokes for whatever. And we, we, on the, uh, the rotation out, we were taken over from three para. And, and so and the first company out with the, the, of the three para were the company that I was taking up. So we, we were the first out from our unit. Mm. And the company we were taken over from, they, they'd already had um, a couple, they'd, they'd already requested a load of aviation assets for some operations. And so I'd actually, um, even before my CO had got out there, I'd done an aviation op under the CO of Free Para. <laughs> and you know, fortunately, it had gone very well. So when the CO had turned up, we were then on another one in the middle of another aviation op. Um, and so when it then came to the whole of 4-2 Commando in place and uh, flag change and all that, when it was, our, when it was the first manoeuvre op, um, because my company had already done two, we then got the first, the first, first op, rather than the ops company, <laughs> much to my best mate's annoyance. Yeah. Um, but what, it, what, it, what I jest, what it meant was um, we then flip-flacked on the ops, on the... Uh, and um, so, and, and the guys, you know, albeit as the tour got um, a lot uh, more kinetic, uh, the guys would probably regret it. But at the time, they, they enjoyed that, that you know, we share the love with the, the ground holding and the aviation, the football, and all the vehicle borne operations that we could do anything from 24 hours to seven days. Mm. Um, but yeah, so it was, it was on one of these operations that uh, we, we were tasked to go in to what was the tri-boundary area, but it was an area where three battle groups kind of met, but because it was to the extremes of the area of operations, the, the insurgents kind of had a bit of a stronghold and the uh, task force, commander of the task force, Hellman, he was keen that... Uh, he wanted to put in a number of checkpoints, but he wanted to do it with the uh, Afghan army and police. But there's a, a village, Loimanda village, needed re-securing and, and so on. And so our company, my company was used as, the plan was to be on task for seven days. We were to go in two days ahead of D-Day or H-Hour in order to lure all the insurgents to our location so the brigade main effort could go kind of as unhindered as possible. Mm. Um, Unfortunately, I suppose we were a little bit too successful with that because we literally, it was like a hornet's nest. Um, we literally drew every insurgent around to our checkpoint, checkpoint Tokyo, which unfortunately become fairly infamous as the, at the time, the most dangerous square mile on earth, which was termed by Chris Terrell, the filmmaker. Mm. Um, and it was, uh, I think, day five or six of that operation that, I got um, blown up by a, a command wire directional fragmentation charge. So the, they, they, by this point, they'd worked out who I was and they, they specifically targeted me as I walked past a, uh, an area. They set off this charge and so it kind of um, hit me to my right-hand side, blew me into down this irrigation ditch, and a big, big hole in my chest, 
big sucking chest wound, tore up my arm apart, fractured, fractured femur, top my tib, patella, white cartilage up my knee, big hole in my leg. But it was my chest injury that was the worst one. That kind of tore my lung apart, fractured all my ribs on the right hand side. Um, lads on the ground did an amazing job, you know, stemmed the bleeding, uh, patched me up, um, got the helicopter in the Mert within, I think it was about 23, 25 minutes. Got me on board. I remember looking at, you know, this kind of, this, I thought it was aircrew initially, kind of leant over me, but it said doctor on his visor. And I just shouted, I said, yeah, please put me to sleep. And he said, this is going to hurt, but you'll be all right. And then with that, he drilled ketamine into my chest. And that was me then for, for three weeks in the end. <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, so obviously that's the that's the end of your operational tour and and the the commencing of presumably a, a lengthy period of recovery. Yeah, I, yeah. So I spent yeah the, yeah th- just under three weeks in an induced coma due to my chest injuries, um, and I yeah, had all sorts of intensive care psychosis nightmares associated with that. I could I could talk to you for hours about that so I won't I won't dwell on them now um so another couple of weeks in intensive care yeah, ended up just shy of three months in hospital and then three years in rehab at Headley Court albeit two two years intense the third year was more I guess the odd operation to tidy up the knee and bits and pieces before I was um medically discharged but the reason my you know, although I was lucky I didn't lose any limbs unfortunately after the initial blast they 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 dug as much shrapnel and body armor and clothing and dirt out of my chest. They couldn't get it all. So they just stapled me together, put me in the coma and flew me back to the UK um, for Queen Elizabeth Hospital to sort out. But by the time I got back, you know, it was within 24 hours, my body was riddled with infection and I wouldn't last another operation. So they just kept me on all the machines. Um, And so then after three three weeks, they're like, okay, we'll we'll just see if the shrapnel in my chest was going to scar over and become part of my body, which is the kind of plan because they didn't really, they were, the, the surgeons were in uncharted territory because apparently, you know, most, they looked at Vietnam and Korea and blast injuries to the chest and lung and so on. And most guys either died or had um, kind of massive you know, organ removal. And there weren't many that had shrapnel right deep inside their chest cavity. And, you know, I had a large piece one and a half millimeters from my pulmonary artery my heart was beating against it stuff like that so it was a bit kind of like we'll just suck it and see really so when i was at headley court i'd have to have my ct scan every four weeks to, to track the shrapnel hmm. and i wasn't allowed my heart rate to go very high and then it, after a year of that unfortunately that it, it the shrapnel was not going to stay still and it started moving and severing vessels i had internal bleeding so i had to go back into hospital for a month and that's when they cut me open again and they found 15 large pieces of shrapnel and so removed a load of my lung and um yeah so my rehab kind of started again so my although i i kept my limbs and you know normally associate long rehab with guys that have had their limbs blown off uh, mine was i guess elongated due to the um complexity of my chest injury yeah and i guess if the inside the chest cavity would they've got how did they go in did they have to open up your your rib cage yeah or- yeah it's called a thoracotomy. I remember foolish, I say foolishly, but I, once I got to Headley Court, um, I, uh, 
I read my, because I travel with my notes, and so I started reading through a load of my medical notes, which I don't think you're probably not meant to do, but, um, and, you know, they were specifically what they did at Camp Bastion, and they did sort of emergency thoracotomy, and I was like, what the hell does that mean? So I Googled it, and a load of these honking videos on YouTube of what a, a thoracotomy is, and I was like, oh my God. <laughs> and it, yeah, so, the, so for your lung, they go, they go in your back, for your, so for your chest, they split your rib cage open from the front, for your heart, sorry. In your lungs they go in through your back mm. and crack your rib, rib cage that way so yeah big cut across your depending on what side it is and then the rib spreaders go in they s- split your rib cage open and go in that way so i've had two of them so so when i went back a year later obviously the first one i didn't know anything about it because i was out and that's that but when i had to go back and have another one by this point i knew fully what was involved and yeah i was a bit like oh this is not going to be good wow yeah I mean, it, yeah is well yeah words kind of fail you in terms of the just visualizing that operation is um is something yeah, else it's fairly gnarly you get some good scars i tell yeah that's, that's, i tell people i've been bitten by a shark it's quite cool yeah scars everyone loves scars it's the, exactly. you know, the <laughs> that is most definitely the positive to to take from it so um i mean you touched you touched briefly there on the on on like some of the challenges that are associated with with this kind of this kind of experience and then and then i guess the enforced departure from the military and obviously you've you've gone off you've gone on to do um well to do your own thing to set up a business and to and and, you know you're trading right now and doing well in the current environment and, and so on so but it must have been quite it must have been quite a a journey you know i mean yeah presumably you didn't want to leave the marines it wasn't your plan so how no i i I suppose initially i foolishly or foolhardly i i I initially in my i remember i think the reason why i I made initially a fairly rapid recovery once i was out of the coma uh in fact i think i shocked a lot of the consultants was because I was obviously high as a kite, but in my mind, I was like, I must get back out to Afghan and be with the blokes. Mm. Um, I felt I'd let down my guys. And clearly, there was no way on earth that was going to happen. But mm. in my head, I honestly believed there was a, a chance of me getting back out on the ground with the guys, <laughs> which mm-hmm. utterly crazy. But, but I think what that meant was I kind of, I'm, you know, I was forcing myself to, to kind of, you know, I remember, you know, the first time being able to go to the toilet on my own without nurses having to wipe my ass and stuff like, you know, and mm-hmm. things like that, you know, miles, you know, what were at the time massive milestones. You see, you know, I remember the first time that I could shave myself, it took 45 minutes because I was just so knackered. And, but little things like that, I would kind of really push myself um, because for a while, whilst I was on the, um, strong drugs so i honestly believe that I, there was a chance of me getting back out with my guys mm. um by the time i got to heavily court clearly you know, the tour was nearly over and um that clearly wasn't going to happen so i was like okay well get get back after pottle or whatever and it was it was the uh, first few weeks my first physio kind of and i was telling her how you know i used to cycle for the navy and the marines and triathlons I was going to get back doing this and that and back with the guys. And she, she was like ruthless, but good ruthless. She said, you need to know that you are never going to cycle to the ability you did. And you're not going to be going back in command of your guys. 
She said, the sooner you realize that, the better. And I was devastated. I was like, what are you on about? I haven't got a clue. Mm. In my mind, I didn't say that. Um, but I processed it over a few days. And it was, you know, initially, the, you know, some of the best advice I could have received really early on in my uh, rehab journey because I was then able to completely switch fire and go, actually, you know what? Once it taken a few days to sink in, that my, in essence, my career was over. Um, but what it then meant, I, I then spent the whole of my rehab focused on what I was going to do outside of the Marines, um, mm. rather than kind of constantly thinking, oh, I, might, I might get back, I might do this, I might be able to do that within the military. I went the whole other way and was like, okay, I get it. My military career is over. I need to focus on what I'm going to do. Clearly, my rehab, but also what I'm going to do uh, when I leave. Um, and so very early on, I, I kind of yeah, made that decision. And then I thought, well, I want to be in charge of my own destiny, run my own diary. And then I soon realized that, well, okay, I've got to be my own boss. If you're going to be your own boss, you set up your own business. If, you, if you've got any chance of being successful, we all know the statistics, you know, 60% fail in the first three years. So it's got to be something you're passionate about. Mm. I was passionate about cycling. I used to build my own bikes I raced on. And so it kind of, the idea actually kind of came around quite quickly of what I, what I wanted to try and do. Mm. And so I guess within the first nine months of being in re of since injury, I thought, right, that's it. I'm going to set up my own bike business and, um, yeah, kind of, yeah, I guess the rest is history. So I, even before I was medically discharged, you know, I, the, the business was, was, was running. So when I was discharged, it just, it was, um, fairly seamless. Yeah. And this is one of the reasons that I was so keen to talk to you because as we've talked about, the, the aim of the podcast is to reflect on the, the journey and the experiences of others so that people who are listening can, can plan their own path accordingly. And your, the experience that you've described there is, is a career change of, of absolutely epic proportions, really. It's not, mm. it's not, it's not as if you went from, running a business to thinking I could do this myself. You know, you, you hadn't been working in, in, a, in the bike industry and in bike shops for 17 years, understanding all of the ins and outs of it. You, you'd been in the Marines um, and on operational tours. So uh, that, that's why, that's one of the reasons that I think it's, it's great. You, but you, I guess in some respects you were lucky that you had such a niche that came naturally to you. Yeah, well, I suppose I, I recognise that there's, there's no way. I, I was I was really keen to have my own brand. I wanted to start my own brand, and I, you know I knew that there's no way you could, I could compete with you know, the mass market um, big bike brands. Mm. And uh, you know everyone talks about you know your USP, unique selling point, and so on. And so I thought, well, if I if I want my own brand, it's going to be small numbers and. And so I, that's why I went down the whole you know, custom route, small numbers, high end, very personal service, mm. looked into bike fitting, looked into equipment, research, courses, qualifications, so that I could make myself stand out um, in, in, in that way. And, and so, you know, and I, I got a lot of support along the way. Help for Heroes were, were really great. They, they provided a grant for tools and equipment um heropreneurs they provided me with a mentor who was who was really great a marketing guy who was you know really helpful 
business plan, um, Royal Marines charity. You know, those three, I, you know, I always mention because the three of them, you know, certainly helped me on my journey. And that's, you know, I don't, I don't, I never try and, I never think, oh, I'm some successful businessman, far, far from it. And I'm very, uh, I always acknowledge that I was you know, given a step up. Being injured veteran, you know, doors are generally open. You know, they're not slammed in your face. You, know, you just got to kind of push them to and, and so on. And so yeah, I'm, I'm acutely aware that the, it was a little bit easier than, the average person because of that situation. You've got to make the most of it. You've got to recognize it. You've got to, you know, you've got to, you know, it's a bit of luck, but there's a lot of work as well. Yeah. And not only that, but you've, you've got to deliver with the, the product as well. And, and looking at, I mean, you've only got to look at the, at the Leos website to see, to see the bikes that, and they do look pretty spectacular. I mean, as to the untrained eye and people who aren't into cycling, then make, Maybe they just look like bikes, but to anyone who does a little bit of cycling, they they don't look normal. You know, they look pretty. They do look pretty special. So I guess it's it's a it's a mixture, isn't it? You've got to that. Yes, you you've got the help, and rightly so. But then you you've got to deliver the the product. Yeah, you, exactly that. You've got to capitalize on it. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people get help and do nothing with it. Uh, so you, yeah, totally agree. You you've got to yeah use it um, and yeah capitalize on that assistance the advice help whatever it may be yeah definitely so when you so you you set the company up you you were going through your your rehab which presumably would have taken a, a, a quite a long time and i guess that's kind of years rather than months three but, years yeah and so, so yeah in, so i was injured the end of may 11 um and i I registered Leos Bikes at the company's house in February 12th. Right. So fairly, and then, and then, wow. and then I, I, and in August 12th, I, that's when I had to go back in and have my chest cut open again. I was in hospital for another month. Um, and then 2013 is when I say I, I officially started trading. I'm clearly not taking a wage because the military was still paying me a wage. Mm. Um, to be honest, I wasn't earning enough anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, but what it meant, so then I, and, and I'll be honest, so at that point, they could, I could have been medically discharged at the end of 2013. And I needed a couple of operations on my leg. And this is where the military were very good to me. You know, at the end of the day, certainly back then, I, I felt, certainly in the Marines, I've only talked for the Marines because that's what I know. Um, the support was there. They, they wanted, for the guys that were going to be medically discharged, they wanted to ensure that they had uh, a career to go into or a course or universe or whatever it may be. They didn't want to kick guys, they wouldn't kick guys out uh, without a plan, without something in place. And, you know, for me, they knew I was, you know, set up this business and that was my plan. They were very supportive of that. And at my medical board, they, they said, look, you've got these operations, we could discharge. And I said, look, clearly I'd rather have another year. So I had that extra year, or I guess, of, in essence, a financial cushion, mm. which is, again, why I go back to say, you know, I had that kind of initial pedestal beginning because I was able to reduce my financial risk because I was still getting my military wage. Yeah. Now, albeit I had obviously military commitments, rehab and so on, I couldn't, you know, fully focus on the business, but it just it just enabled me a little bit more time to to get the business going. 
Uh, and so, but again, as I said earlier, it's, it's about capitalizing on that. I could have sat around and done nothing until the last month, but I didn't. I worked hard and used that time wisely. Yeah, and we, we recently had on um, a sergeant that I used to work with who is currently going through resettlement. He's, he's three months in, he's got nine months left. Mm. And um, he made the same point, basically. It was a bit of, a bit of tough love. Um, but basically, you, you, have to, you have to work hard. You have to, whether it's, so in his case, he's, he worked out, um, taught, kind of taught himself how to use LinkedIn and do a bit of networking and connect with people. And, and he's gained a lot of traction from doing that. And obviously that's just one tool. But the point he made was that in the, in the military, he's been taught and people have been taught to be resilient and to, and to make stuff happen through adversity. And yet when, when the time to resettle comes, there's, a, there's an extent to which people sometimes say, well, this hasn't been done for me. This has that hasn't been yeah. done for me. This is this this is rubbish. That's rubbish. It's like, well, yeah, this is a bit of a precursor to what's to what's to come because ultimately, uh, no one really owes you anything, and exactly. and and that's what you will get unless you you know you come up with a, a solid plan for yourself and then and then execute it with with sort of determination, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, and you're always going to get guys, you know, whether it be Marines, Army, whoever. There's always guys that are going to go, oh, I've got no support, I've got no... But those are the guys that haven't made any effort. They haven't really, you know, they just expected it to be handed to them. And you get those types of people in every walk of life. Uh, it's just the way it is. Um, uh, but, you know, the, the guys that generally have, have done something for themselves, you know, you don't hear them complaining. They're generally saying, oh, the support was really good. Mm. And it is, if you, you know, if you, if you make an effort, it's the same, isn't it? And the same I was saying to my kid. My kids, you know, I, I don't mind if they don't, if they fail an exam or they don't do very well. As long as they put in the effort beforehand, as long as they try, then that's what, you know, that's what matters. Mm. Yeah, and the other, the other thing as well that comes to mind in terms of starting a business, having left the military, um, it, it's an, I mean, we've, we've both done that. You, you are further down the, the journey than I, but, um, but one kind of key lesson is that it, you're almost back to, in some respects you're just you're kind of back to square one you know yeah. you've, you've had all of those years of experience and you've got you've been given a, a rank that you that you wear with your with your uniform that you wear and um and that all that all matters a great deal and then all of a sudden you you don't have that which is fine because you're kind of ready for that but the challenges around building a business and just the, the nuts and bolts the administration the detail yeah it, it takes a really long time um it's not it's not it's not Dragon's Den. It's not Richard Branson. It is, it's real nuts and bolts, detail, quite tedious at times. And you, and resilience is, is the one word that kind of comes up again and again and again. When, when yeah, totally. People about it. As, as you know, it's a, it's a lot of graft, yeah. a lot of graft. Cause you, you know, in the early days, you've got to do everything yourself because you've got this whole kind of, um, time money issue. You, you know, you, if you want to free up time to do, uh, you know, certain aspects, then you need money to pay for those bits that you're no longer doing and vice versa. And I just, I still have it now, this constant, or well, actually I could do that or I could pay someone. I, I've, I've now got better in the sense that I think to myself, well, it, I, I could go and do design that leaflet. I need, I need a new bike fitting leaflet. And I thought to myself, well, I could design that myself. 
it will take me four hours. Um, but then I think, well, actually, if I give it to a designer, it'll probably take him one hour and pay him. What's my four hours worth in money that I've, wa- you know, I've wasted, not wasted, but if I spent four hours designing a leaflet, mm. that's me earning X. And well, actually, it's therefore more beneficial to pay someone to do it because I can make the money yeah, and so on. And it's take, it took me a long time to, to recognize that, that actually um, you've, got to, you've got to delegate. And the problem, the problem is you can't, back in, in the military, if you, if you did have, you know, if you were in a position of command or leadership, then you could delegate tasks. Yeah. And that's, I suppose, something, yeah, that's, you, suddenly you can't delegate anything to anyone. You are doing everything. And if you do want to delegate something, which you can, you've got to pay for it, i.e. to a designer or whatever. Um, yeah. that's, that's definitely the, yeah, I suspect, for me, yeah. the hardest aspect. And, and also, interestingly, you know, to touch on, on delegation and if we go back to that organization that you were running when you went on on tour and you had 100 170 180 people under your command that 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 organization can basically runs in the civilian world they call it delegation in the military you call it mission command mm. you know and um yeah it's an interesting position to be in where you've been trained to operate in that in that model you've been your whole your whole way of operating revolves around around teams um, and getting and, and people leading their teams to then just be completely on your own, where you have to do every single aspect of the business um, operation. Yeah. But yeah. it's a really good. Yeah, you make a really good point because again, you know, whether you were engineers, artillery, marine, whatever you and whatever rank, you've all come through a similar training process. You have a similar thought process as you say therefore mission command you could say well this is what this is my intent this and you know that whatever level it's going to get done whereas what i've found you you have to be really specific you can't you can't give someone your intent whether they work for you or whether they you're subcontracting or whatever Mm. because they don't think like you they haven't gone through your thought they haven't gone through your training process and so on and so I've certainly found that I have to be absolutely specific with what I want. Otherwise, it doesn't get done how you want it. Mm. Yeah. Just uh, one, one thing that I wrote down whilst you were talking earlier, actually, was, um, was the name Chris Tyrrell. Um, because it rang a bell. Is, he's, is he a documentary maker? Who, yeah. Yeah. And he, I think it just in terms of people, anyone who's listening... If I remember correctly, he's made some absolutely brilliant documentaries that were largely around the Royal Marines. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. To be fair, yeah, yeah. He's done a number of documentaries, not not all to do with the military, he's done all sorts. Um, but he, I think, the reason he's got an affiliation with the Marines, his first one on the military, he did. He 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 literally did a whole. He went through training. Yeah, that was instead it. of a weapon, he had a camera. Yeah. And he did everything, including the commando tests. And so he's got, he's got an honorary Green Beret, but he did them in the timings. And he, followed, he slept, you know, did the whole thing with a recruit troop. Mm. Uh, and so he, in, in essence, he's gone through the whole process, like I say, albeit without, without a weapon. Yeah. Um, and I suppose the Corps therefore adopted him. He adopted the Corps and he went on to make a number. He then, this was before the first Afghans, this was you know, 20 years ago. And then... When Afghan, Afghan kicked off, he then went and found a load of the guys that he went through training with and did another documentary on what they were doing there at Afghan, and then he went back. And so he, he's then, he then kind of 
you know, did a number of things. He was actually on the tour, that, on the operation that I got injured on specifically at that point. He was due to come with us as a detachment. Wow. Um, but at the last minute, it was deemed too dangerous. They said, actually, what we were going in to do was too risky. There was no one. To, they said, definitely no press. But then they, right at the last minute, um, they said, uh, no, you can't go in either. And I remember he actually he interviewed us leaving Bast because we'd flown from our checkpoints at Forbes. I had a, a, an afternoon at Bast because it was a big op. You know, I was flying in 112 people on this op. And um, so we launched from Bastion. And uh, I, I never realized, only year, years later that he kind of, he found this video footage of me where he'd interviewed me just before we'd gone on the op. Wow. Um, well, and then he eventually got out to the checkpoint six weeks later. Yeah, I think it's just worth, um, if you YouTube, uh, is it Chris Tyrrell? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, T-E-R-R-I-L-L, yeah. Yeah, because um, I think I, I do remember watching those documentaries and I think they're on YouTube and they're, they're really very good. Um, so, I mean, in terms of like the current activities, there's, there's quite a strong sort of motorsport and also like mentoring theme, although those two are unrelated. In, yeah. But how did, how did you get into motorsport? Um, so, um, I've, yeah, as with a lot of military, I've always been an adrenaline junkie. And when, when I was going through rehab, uh, I, you know, I, I knew military career was going to be over and I knew that I wouldn't be able to you know, kind of compete in sport to the level that I used to be able to, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't exceptional, but you know, I, I you know, hold my own and get in in certain cycling categories and so on. And, um, I so said, what it was, I, uh, I, I, you know, I'd always dreamt of motorsport, but just thought there was no way it was ever going to happen. I just, you know, it was just, too much money and so on and would never get the opportunity or anything like that. And I was chatting with a, a friend. In fact, it was my, uh, my first customer that I sold my first bike to. And she won't mind me mentioning her name. So Francie Clarkson, Jeremy Clarkson's ex-wife. Right. Ex, yeah. Um, and we've become very good friends and she's got a couple of my bikes and she, she was a, a massive supporter. She, you know, she, introduced me to a lot of people which um, helped my business in the early days and uh, she I was um, at her house I think I'd serviced a bike or something I can't remember uh, I was still I was still kind of in rehab at the time you know kind of on leave or whatever it was yeah. and I'd said I, I was saying to her oh, yeah, I've, got this, I've seen this, this yeah, car racing on TV and I think I'm going to use some of my uh, military compensation money to kind of give it a, you know try and do it she's like don't be crazy she said, it costs a fortune you're gonna lose all your money and that's ridiculous and i said well i've just got i've just got this scratch i need to itch and she said well we, you, you know there's a, there's a military charity that's just been set up by an by an ex-military guy and i was like no what's it mission motorsport she said you need to check them out and anyway, she look. I phoned the guy because he he'd been in touch with her just to see if she could help out with her contacts. Obviously, being uh, Jeremy's manager at the time. And anyway, she phoned him, and he's like, "Oh, I'm just on my way back from Silverstone. I'm not far from your house." And she said, "Right, come by for a coffee." Anyway, this guy, what Jim Cameron, walks in. So he he was a squadron commander on the tour before mine, um, oh. as a yeah, as a major. 
and had, had set up this charity while still serving, but then left the army to run the charity full time. And anyway, long, long story short, he said, look, don't spend your own money. It's crazy. He said, you may not enjoy it. You may be crap. Get involved with the charity and, you know, get into motorsport that way and see where it takes you. So, so I did. Did some track days, which then I, I was firmly kind of hooked. And uh, then we, we set up a stunt car display team, although we weren't allowed to call it that. I think we had to call it something else. But anyway, and then um, at the beginning, at the end of 2013, so again, I'm still, yeah, I'm still in rehab at Headley. He introduced me to Caterham. <clears throat> and they run a, an academy every year where they take 40-odd uh, guys and girls uh, through your racing license and you go race for a year and then they you know every year you can go up the ladder and the cars get faster and so on, more sophisticated anyway the 2014 season they had one car that they hadn't sold you know people pay a lot of money to to do this academy basically and obviously the charity we're not gonna you know we would never do anything like that because it's far too much money for one per to spend on one person anyway Basically, Caterham turned around and said, look, if we don't sell this final place to a paying customer, they said, look, to Mission Motorsport, they said, look, you know, you choose someone. And at the time, the thing with the Caterham Academy, they're very specific that you're not allowed outside help in that first year. They really want you to learn the trade craft. They want you to learn about the car and so on. And whereas Mission Motorsport were all about having an infrastructure, a team, the team couldn't go and support someone. So there's actually very few people really that um, could go off and just go and do it on their own. So long, I, I got, basically I got selected. Mm-hmm. And so I went off to do my race license with all these other 40 odd um, guys and girls paying lots of money to do it past that. And then the day after the catering guys are like, they were really sorry, but we don't want to tell you beforehand, but we've actually sold that car. But we still wanted you to get your race license. And I was obviously gutted. Um, but I, I'd kind of, I think I'd made a good impression with a lot of the other um, blokes. And they said to Case, well, you need to get another car. You need to make this happen. This is a really good thing. Injured veteran, blah, blah, blah. And so they really sung my praises. So Case went back to the charity and said, look, you know, we're, in it. we're a month away from the start of the season. Uh, we haven't got the technician time to build a race car. He said, we will give you all the kit, the parts to build a race car. If you can build, as in the charity, can build it in two weeks, then Steve can race. So Jim Cameron turned around to me and said, right, if you can build a car in two weeks, you can race it. And so I then went up to their unit and uh, 49 boxes turned up from Caterham. With all the, and I built, I built the Caterham in six, 49 hours and six days on my own. <laughs> really? On your own? Yeah, on my own. As he said, you've got to do it on my own. I got, <laughs> I got him and another guy. They helped me hoist the engine in. But apart from that, I did it all on my own. Wow. That must have been a serious set of instructions. Oh, they were horrendous. They're absolutely rubbish. So out of date. Fortunately, there was a guy that I could call, which I called probably 10 times a day, who uh, knew every little nut and bolt. Um, and I mean, there's silly little... I remember spending... You know, two hours trying to find starter motor box, finding it in all this pile of boxes, opening it, and there was a headlight in it. And I'm like, clearly it says starter motor. It's got a picture of stars on the motor. Where's the starter motor? And the instruction says, 
bolt the start motor onto the engine. I'm like, oh, I've wasted time. I phoned him, I said, where's the start motor? There's a bloody headlight in the start motor box. He went, oh. He went, oh, he's like, oh. So this is on the engine. He said, is it on the engine? And I went, well, it says bolt it onto the engine. I said, I've not looked on the engine. <laughs> and it, for some reason, the start motor had already been bolted onto the engine. Anyway, the instructions were fairly woeful. <laughs> yeah, well, it's quite an achievement to, to build. I mean, and which, because Caterham, obviously, they make pretty cool cars. So was it like a, is it, a, is, is Lotus Super 7 and then like a Caterham, what, which, what model was it? So it was what's called uh, well, it's it Academy race car. So it's, it's a, it's what are they? What is the equivalent now? It's a K. I think it's Caterham one, uh, one thirty-five or something. I can't. I don't know what the road-going version is. But it was a specific. Well, it, you could drive on the road for the first year actually. Um, but it was a specific race variant. Um, but yeah, the Lotus Seven is what, is what became the Caterham. Um, oh. And. And yeah, and so I, and because I, I built the car, I knew a lot about it, so I could kind of work on it through the season. And you know, I, you know, no support, no, no race instructor. All these, all these other guys had paid race instructors to teach them at every track, and they were doing test days. And I just, I hadn't even the first time I'd driven it was at the first event, <laughs> and I got in it, and there was something wrong with it. Anyway, the next time I drove it was at the next event, and then. The next time I had one test day in, in it before the next race, and then I came second in the race. And wow, so I, well, and it, I ended up somehow fourth overall in the championship at the end of the year. And the uh, caterer said, Look, you know, you, you obviously got a little bit of natural talent. Um, do you, you know, we, we'd love for you to kind of stay on till next year where you know the car gets upgraded. He said, But we, we can't pay for it. Um, the charity said, well, we're not paying for it. Too much money for one person, rightly so. Um, so they said, look, if you get sponsorship to pay for it, we'll, we'll loan you the car. So that's what I did. So then for four years, I, I kind of raised the money myself and raced and ended up, I'm just looking at my, um, sounds weird, I'm looking at my uh, trophy cabinet right now. I ended up having a uh, um, 50% podium rate over four years. In my final season, I had a 70% podium rate. Uh, Unfortunately, last season I was on. It was I was second place. I was on for the championship win, uh, but unfortunately the engine blew up at the last round. Do you think? Do you think that your um, your sort of youth, like riding bikes at high speed and having to, you know, because there's there's a degree of control there. Do you think that was good preparation, or or is it just sort of ability? No, I think I think. Um, I honestly believe it was uh, what I'd learnt. Uh, the the ability to um, react under pressure. I'm not going to say react under fire. Clearly, that's part of it. But react under pressure. The yeah. be, the ability to be able to multitask. The ability to be able to um, be able to. Yeah, I think multi. In, interestingly, what I found was a lot of guys. They were, at ma- they were at maximum capacity just driving the car, just keeping it on the track. Mm. Um, whereas I didn't have to think about driving the car. I was thinking about tactics. I was thinking about, well, I recognize that car. I know that driver. I know what he does. And so I'd watch what they do in that turn so I could assess where the best place was to overtake. And so I think it was having spare capacity about not being, you know, guys were being sick in their health. You know, these are, you know we're all novices that suddenly, you know, on the racetrack the end of yeah. the day 
and people are being sick in their helmets the first few races because they're through nerves. Whereas I wasn't nervous at all because I was like, well, I've been under far higher pressure you know, situations. Mm. Um, and so I think it was the ability to deal with you know, nerves and pressure and so on helped, which is what I obviously learned being in the military. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, and, yeah and so and, and, and what, during that four year process as well, I wanted to be able to give back to the charity. So I did my instructor's qualification. So I, again, I'm now a racing driving instructor, which meant that the charity didn't have to get instructors in. I could, I could help out there. And it also was an, is another kind of, um, I suppose, another, another business uh, that I started up as well was, was instructing. Um, and then at the end of 2017, I was very lucky to be selected for the Invictus Games race team, which was a massive jump up to uh, racing British GT at a national level, which was absolutely incredible. Wow. Wow. What a, what a ride. And so when, yeah. when did you, um, when did you uh, make the decision to, to, to get involved in becoming a mentor yourself? Because you mentioned you received some mentorship, but you now, you now also provide that service, don't you? Yeah, so I'd mentioned earlier on Heropreneurs, who um, provide a, a great service to veterans, and not just injured, all veterans and spouses, uh, female, male or female, um, where they will uh, assign mentors to uh, guys and girls that want to set up a business when they leave the military. And uh, Peter Mountford, who, who runs the, the charity, he, he'd been on me for some time uh, saying, oh, why don't you become a, um, a mentor? And I was like, no, I've not got enough experience. Because you know, a lot of these guys, you know, the corporate legends that have been you know, in industry for 20, 30 years. And, I just, mm. I'm, and they said, no, he said, somebody could have worked in business for 30 years. It doesn't mean they can impart knowledge. He said, you're, you know, you're raw, you're fresh, you've been through it recently. Uh, anyway, in, uh, I was... Um, I was, uh, yeah, awarded Heropreneur of the Year a couple of years ago. Oh, wow. And so after that, I kind of said, uh, okay, yeah. And he said, look, I've got this, I've got this uh, ex-Marine who's um, set up a, a kind of a bushcraft academy, a, a woodland kindergarten with his wife. Uh, you know, anyway, so I, I, I kind of started mentoring them. I, I don't want to say I mentored them. You know, they're intelligent guys. I think I just... What I was able to do was just offer advice to avoid the poo traps and the pitfalls. Yeah. Uh, to try and you know, all all the things that I'd learned the hard way, I can say, look, no, actually, don't do this, do do that, or and you know, obviously different industries, and sometimes you just got to go through those experiences and learn them anyway. So, that, but it just you know, I, I, I just a, someone they could talk to and you know we still it was only due to be for a year normally they only try and do it for 12 months but then you can continue you know obviously we're now the friends and we still chat and uh, you know nick and louise goldsmith running hidden valley bushcraft you know they're doing amazing things amazing things yeah. what's even better is last year they went on to be heropreneurs of the year which is amazing <laughs> yeah yeah and um uh, and yeah, we've we've had both both of them on the the podcast in, individually as opposed to as a pair. Um, yeah. And it's uh, yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Like was, when I heard about heard about the the concept, um, it's just it's just an amazing concept. It, even if even if you take the you know the kind of the 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 trauma aspect out of it, and just the idea of being outdoors, 
learning and reconnecting with the skills that we've acquired as a as a species over over tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years like it's just such a good idea yeah um, it's, a, it's so, amazing yeah. When, when you visit and you see you know the, the kindergarten you imagine you know it, <laughs> they run this kindergarten in all weathers um but the kids you know nowadays with you know tablets and phones and social media and screens and everything else um I think I think the, the parents of the the young kids in the in the kindergarten really recognise that they get you know at the end of the day they get these kids back that are um, they're not ratty uh, you know they, they they sleep well they're well mannered um, because you know of, of, at the end of the day they're, they're learning but they're learning in the outdoors they're they're, they're getting to run around they're getting to you know exercise all, all the kind yeah it's great and also that's just one aspect but that's a, a particular I know that was particularly tough for them because you know, you're going to jump through a lot of hurdles to have a, a kindergarten in the woods well yeah <laughs> yeah and, a, a, ph- a phenomenal amount i mean the whole yeah. the whole duty of care yeah aspects in terms of what what industry or what sector of 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 um of government is is more heavily regulated than uh, than child care you know it's a, it's an incredible yeah. achievement yeah amazing and, you know and they did and that was just one that was one aspect of what they're doing and now that you know they're, they're, the staff, you know, they're, they, uh, they're, you know, they, they've just got a grant to build a, a cabin. They, you know, they do, they do wounded warrior program where they help out veterans. You know, they do stag dues. I think Nick loves just taking, you know, one on one. He'll take uh, someone out for a four day trek, learning to live off the land. I mean, that's his passion. Yeah, um, and he loves doing that. And you know, I know he wants to build a profile so that eventually that can be his main you know they'd still run the other businesses but i know at the end of the day he likes to be out there foraging and you know the, the, the ideal client someone paying him a good wage to just take him out in yeah and, and survive on the land for a couple of days and um he likes to pass on everything all of his knowledge is great yeah yeah it really is and, I, and also i just think it is a bit i i haven't done it myself but i i just think it must be a very rewarding skill to to learn to acquire um, yeah and his knowledge is incredible i remember when i first started talking to him you know you kind of think well is, is it, you know how much does he know but his knowledge of everything is so in-depth it's amazing it really is yeah. when it comes to you know the wilderness and outdoors and trees and everything it's just like yeah um it really is and i think i think i think that's why when people kind of spend time with them they like that's not just about being passionate they really are knowledgeable yeah yeah no it's great well so and do you have more do you have other sort of uh aspirations to mentor more people or different people in the pipeline or is it just yeah i said i said i think think it will again i'm not not specifically this year just because i at the end of last year i so i did so i did the i i suppose for a few years, I was still running Leos whilst doing the motorsport, and when it was racing British GT, I, you know, I really hankered to try and push into the motorsport world in a big way. Um, you know, and I, I'd kind of come up with some grand plans to set up a whole military team and race at the Mon and pushing for that. And that's still that is still one of my kind of, I guess, it's it's on there, but it's um, I guess it's a, a bit of a pipe dream, essentially, really. Um, but it, so at the end of last year, I realised that. I there's time I focused all my effort back on Leos bikes, mm. 
And um, so, yeah, towards the end of last year, I decided that uh, in addition to my, the custom bike business and bike fitting, I wanted to be, wanted to set up a bit of a, a cycling hub community offer, you know, offer the things that a normal bike shop would offer, but, mm. but, but more. And so I took on new, new premises, big premises, big fit out. Uh, and I'm going to start doing a couple of, I just started uh, a South Coast dealer for Santa Cruz mountain bikes. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to take on a couple of high-end brands to complement Leos. Um, and that's, yeah, that's, I suppose that's my main focus. And I'm, is, you know, I was thinking about, you know, I was saying earlier about hard graft, you know, I still now I get up at six, clear emails, you know, have breakfast with kids, work all day. I was, before we started chatting, I think I'd said to you, I've got back 20 minutes before we were due to chat here and, yeah. and I'll be then clearing emails after this conversation. So it, it, it doesn't stop, um, but it's interesting. Yeah, definitely. And, and the end product is something that you, that you're passionate about, that it, high quality that gets people outdoors exercising and, and having fun. So, you know, what, what's if that's the end result, then it's, it's gotta be worth it. Yeah, totally. Brilliant. Well, Steve, thank you very much for your time. Um, what's the best method for people who want to keep up to speed with with what you're up to, whether it's motorsport, bikes, or or just you in general? Uh, yeah, I suppose so. Leos bikes, uh, all, all social media, you know, usual Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at Leos bikes, one word. Um, yeah, racing stuff is um, at, at Stephen McCulley or at Steve McCulley, uh, or at, in uh, Racing Invictus, which is the uh, the race team. Um, yeah, so leosbikes.com website, stephenmcculley.com website, invictusracing.com website. <laughs> well, I've also, I've also got, I should have said, I've thrown in, I've also got a, a um, I don't do much of it though. I've got my commercial, um, as, I was going to say drone, you're not meant to call them drone, but in essence, my drone license, pilot's license. Yeah. Um, so I've got Airfot is my website as well, aerial photography try to keep busy <laughs> yeah covering all spectrums of yeah literally <laughs> brilliant well steve thanks again for your time i really do appreciate it and um and yeah and i hope things continue to go from strength to strength thanks very much uh, thank you for having me on not at all thanks steve <laughs>